I got this delicious uh, black cherry sparkling water cracked open, ready to go. How is it? Is it good? It's delicious. I got a pompala mousse. Oh, I have my. an apple bubbly. <clears throat> is that like a uh, apple, like Steve Wozniak, Steve, Steve Jobs? Yes, this is apple brand uh, sparkling water. <laughs> it was only $14 for this can. Eye water. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, dedicated archivist of obscure deaths, Peter Cook. You don't want to know who died. I can tell you, you're the one who died, Sean. Oh shit, it's getting (laughs) morbid. And of course, aspiring collector of vintage paper airplanes. Jeremy Ruggles. I really appreciate, uh, I kind of interrupted a few of your intros there, Sean, but this one, when you started off, it felt a lot friendlier. Your first ones felt a little too aggressive, so I'm I'm very pleased with how you started this episode. Okay. That has nothing cool. to do with my name. I don't care. <laughs> it just had to be known. I appreciate the, the boost of confidence. You guys want to talk about a record today? Yes. Yeah. Well, as it just so happens, I have a really good record that can be purchased for a dollar that we could talk about. You guys just want to listen to a song before we say anything about it? Yeah. Well, should we at least say what the record is? I think that's protocol. No. Breaking protocol with this oh, episode. Whoa. All right. We're just we're just playing the, the song. Here you go. Here it is.
bring us a Kashif record, Sean? It sounds like Kashif. Oh, there's a reason for that. He's on this record. But uh, his his name's not on the cover. That honor belongs to a certain Evelyn Champagne King. Evelyn Champagne King. Yes, sir. Is that how Uh, she went professionally at this point? Is that like on the record? Is it Evelyn Champagne King? On this record, she's actually just listed as Evelyn King at this point. I'm not sure when exactly she officially dropped the Champagne moniker. Did either of you happen to read how she got that nickname? No. Nope. Apparently, as a younger girl, she was known for having a very bubbly personality, and most of her family and friends thought she was going to be a professional comedian. That kind of just morphed into Champagne as a nickname over the years. Ah, I was wondering where that had originated. Yep. I knew that song. I didn't, I had not heard of Evelyn King before you were like, hey, we're doing this. But I know that song. Is that like a hit? That was a pretty big hit for her, actually. Not her biggest hit, but it's it's around for sure. We are talking about Evelyn King's fifth studio album from 1982, and it's called Get Loose. So this was her second best-selling album. Her first album in 1977 went to number 14 in the Billboard Hot 200 and reached number eight on the R&B charts, whereas this album was her second best showing in the Billboard Top 200. It hit number 27, but it actually hit number one in the R&B charts. And that song was one of her biggest hits of her careers. Yeah, I saw that there was a video made for that that I believe aired on MTV in the in the early days. Yeah, MTV. she was actually one of the earliest artists to fully adopt the music video format and that really helped boost her career around this point she was an an early mtv star yeah and i have to think i always you know you always hear that mike michael jackson was the first african american artist that mtv would play although i think they might have played like past well they they played past the duchy on the left hand side before that (laughs) (laughs) with i don't even know if that band is actually american or not whatever that band is called but anyway uh um, they're called musical youth musical youth yeah i don't know where they're from i don't know i mean i they were definitely billed as a reggae act i don't know if they were ever from jamaica or if they're just a a u.s band cop in that style i don't know (laughs) we'll have to look into musical youth in the future here but uh yeah (laughs) but yeah so she must have been right around that same this is pretty much contemporaneous to thriller that this album would be it actually is. I had a note of Notable Records also released in 1982 in the funk genre. And I partly did that because the year 1982 was an early thing I noticed in funk record collecting that some of my favorite records all came out in 1982. They're British. You know, we've talked before about... They're British Jamaican. Oh, musical youth. Okay, so... The- <laughs> Thanks, Jeremy, plus the internet. Yeah, but so 1982, though, hot year for, for funk records for yeah. Sean. Yeah, so we we had talked about in record collecting starting to pick up on things to look for when digging in records that you've never seen before. And one of those elements can be uh, learning what years you tend to like the best within different subgenres. And I found pretty quickly that for funk, 1982 was just a good year. So for this episode, I decided to put together a little list of some of the notable funk records that came out and some of the ones that have been in my collection for a while. So starting off, Michael Jackson's Thriller and Prince's 1999. 
And then uh, you also got Trouble Funk did Drop the Bomb. George Clinton did his solo computer games album, Gap Band 4, Zap 2. Patrice Russian did Straight from the Heart. D-Train did his first album, You're the One for Me. Godly and Cream did Snack Attack. (laughs) That's a great one. You haven't even heard Uh, it. Rick James did Throwing Down. (laughs) And then another album that we've also covered on the show, Materials One Down, came out in 1982. Love it. And then the best-selling soul funk album of that year was Marvin Gaye's Midnight Love, which features his single Sexual Healing, which spent 10 weeks at number one in the R&B charts. And then Evelyn King's song Love Come Down was the fourth best charting R&B single of the year. It spent five weeks at number one. Wow. It's got a good video to it. If I watched the video, Sean. I have. It's, it's kind of understated. She's just like on the beach, walking around, singing her song. It's pretty cool. I thought that it was just going to be her. I'm like, oh, there's no love interest in this. It's just her. And then suddenly a camera pans out and she's hanging on a like a beach towel with, with a dude. And uh, and then the video ends with a shot of the album cover. <laughs> yeah, sitting in the sand. So I, I was, I was like, watching... I was watching that video with my wife, Samantha, and halfway through, she's like, you know, this video really just needs a half-naked man in it. Like, that would definitely elevate it. And all of a sudden, like, there you go. That did it. Perfect video. <laughs> she conjured it up. It happened. You guys want to listen to another song? Hit me. All right. Yeah. I'm going to play another hit. This is the follow-up hit off this album, Side A, Track 3. The song is called Betcha She Don't Love You. This is another one. Both this and the other song we played were written by Kashif. We will get into a little more later. Think of that song. I like that one. Uh, that's the one that I think I was the most familiar with. I hadn't really ever actively listened to it, but I feel like I've heard it out in the world for most of my life. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't know if I was familiar with that song at all before purchasing this album, but 
How about you, Jeremy? I don't recognize that song from the world. Mostly it struck me that sort of repetitive keyboard that was a really like computery, not catchy melody, but then her like kind of sweet vocals over it. It was an interesting contrast. I almost started to think it sounded like uh, Depeche Mode at, all, yeah. at points, you know. If <laughs> yeah, like almost abrasive sounding keys. Yeah, I just noted that now. It really, for some reason, stuck out even more now than before when I was previewing this album. Uh, but I really like that track, her voice with that combination of those sort of mechanical, it, as you said, it's not very melodic, but then she's soaring over the top of it. Yeah. Yeah, and it kind of elevates the arrangement behind it once the vocals come in. That, that's something I'd been thinking about while listening to this as well, so I'm glad you guys picked up on that. That was kind of an intentional production choice from the team of people, including Kashif, that were working on this record. They're just coming out of the disco era where, like we've talked about before, it's the four on the floor, a lot happening, string section, multiple guitars, and then a lot of similar funk bands of the time period, you know, thinking back to the Midnight Star episode we just did, most funk bands were pretty large groups, you know, nine or more people. There's a lot happening. And the production choice here was to go for something kind of radically different in that world and have a very stripped down, almost minimalist backing tracks to this to really let her vocals shine in a way that they had not yet in her career. And I think it worked perfectly on this album. Yeah, I don't know enough about her previous work to know how this compares to that, but I imagine that stuff she was doing five years prior sounded nothing like this. Yeah, you know, I mean, unless you're a huge disco fan, I think this mid-period stuff in her career is much better than her early work. But I'm sure some people disagree, and that's fine. Let's talk a little bit about who Evelyn King is. She was born on July 1st, 1960. She was grew up in a, a musical household. Both her parents and her uncle had small parts in the music business. Her father would sing backup vocals at a local venue when artists would come through town. Her mother was a manager of a smaller act. And they also worked a lot of side jobs to make money coming up. And one of those side jobs was doing janitorial cleaning work. And that's actually how she was discovered. Her and her mother were cleaning bathrooms and offices at Philadelphia International Records. And she was overheard by one of the producers there, a guy named Theodore Life, who commonly goes by the nickname T-Life. And he immediately signed her for a production deal and then helped get her a record contract to RCA Records. And she had her first number one hit when she was 17 years old. That's like how it happens in the movies. I know, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. So yeah, her first big hit was a song called Shame, which I know a lot of people are more familiar with. I wasn't terribly familiar with it. It sounded a little bit familiar, but again, it's the disco heads will know all about it, I'm sure. All the disco heads in our audience. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Producer T-Life did her first three albums, and she had charting singles from all three of them, but the second and third album did a little bit worse than the one before it. And I don't know if she dropped her relationship with him or if he dropped her, what happened, but they parted ways after the third record. And in a lot of ways, it seemed like there was really no way for her career to come back. You know, she was a, a child disco star coming into the era where disco was pretty much dead. Someone resurrecting their career from that doesn't really happen 
in that world very often, but she somehow did it. The record right before this, in 1981, after leaving T-Life, she started working with Kashif, Paul Lawrence, and Maury Brown, who were an up-and-coming production trio, ready to take the world by storm, but were not quite there yet. And that produced her fourth album, I'm in Love, which was widely considered a massive comeback record for her. The production was fresh. It was more in line with like the new things that were happening in the world of funk and gave her, I think, a lot of street cred. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon I was noticing where this mid-period charted much better on the R&B charts, but charted worse on the pop charts like we had talked about, where she kind of like switched her audience and gained, I think, a more dedicated following during this part of her career. Okay. Who is she as a person, though, Sean? <laughs> I don't know how much, like, interview footage there is with Evelyn King or what, or, like, did you get a vibe for her as a human? I couldn't find specific interview footage, but I, I tried to read up as much, read up on her as much as I could. And the few, like, quotations I got from her is that she seemed very very driven and very dedicated to doing exactly what she wants to do. I get the feeling that these shifts in style were probably more on her part. She was able to maintain having minor hits all through the nineties and even had a couple like low heart charting hits in the late two thousands. And she has stated that she has always felt it was important to like stay in the clubs and go out to shows and get a feel for the new th trends that are happening, the new twists in musical styles and to stay on top of that. She's done work with house music producers later on in the eighties and nineties and just constantly reinventing herself and staying relevant. Well, I can't say I was familiar with her name prior to this, but it, I probably am just not really tuned into her specific field too much, especially during the times that probably was uh you know hitting the charts yeah totally can confirm peter can't dance <laughs> you can confirm yeah just kidding you've been there you've seen i know you can dance <laughs> yeah I, I, I don't really hit the clubs though you're right about that i i basically just hit uh jeremy ruggles valentine's day parties that happened 10 years ago truth that's where, that's where <laughs> i get so my dance on so 10 years ago, Peter could dance. Yeah. Cool. Well, how about another song? Yeah. Let's do it. What do you got? Uh, I want to play a track off side B this time. This is track two on side B. It's called Stop That. Is it going to make Peter dance? Oh, it just might. We'll find out. And I'd buy that for a dollar. Come back.
We've talked about some of the other dollar records or bargain bin records that we feature on this show being rather inconsistent. Uh, we talked about that with the Brothers Johnson episode, having some tracks that weren't as quality as the other ones featured on it. In this case, I feel like this one is consistent, but it almost in some ways works against the whole al- album as a whole. In that all the, most of the songs are in a very similar tone. It, they're very, it's very consistent from one track to the next. And I think from a DJ perspective, that works really well because you could drop the needle on any track and you've got a good banger to dance to. But uh, from a perspective of listening one track after another, I found that after the third or fourth song while previewing this, that my attention would start to wane because there hadn't been much variety. The sequencing is weird, especially that they chose to put the one slower ballad at the very end of the album. And yeah, which which I think is really the only bad song on the album, too, interestingly enough. Yeah, it's like they just realized it shouldn't have been on there at all, but needed the, the one extra track to fill it out. Sure. And so, yeah I, yeah, I feel like, and so hearing that one just now out of sequence, which I think is the sixth track on the album... Sure, it was it was just as good as the other stuff we'd heard, but usually by the time I got there, I, I needed something like with the Donna Summer record that we did where they changed it up from one side to the next, different stylistic approaches. This one seems very much hitting that same, you, playing to her strengths without really taking a lot of chances, maybe? Yeah, it could be. I think that's just a general difference in the style of music that it is. We've talked about it's kind of rare for soul and funk records to really lay into the album format as much yeah we talked about that uh, a lot of times it's midnight star as well yeah totally so it's like these are all great dance songs individually they all stand up really well but you're right i think it's not a concept album in any way and it, it is interesting to play these dance records straight to finish sometimes yeah and it's no slight on the quality of the music i think they're really they're hitting all the right points. I, I just feel like, yeah, from a perspective of, yeah, an album is a complete work. I don't know that it really fully lives up to that. Yeah. I mean, I think as far as dance records go, it's it's nearly a perfect dance record. But yeah, it doesn't stand up as a as an album listen. The other thing is, the only reason the last track is not as good is because it's the only one to not feature Kashif or Paul Lawrence on it. It's like oh. a different production team. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed really different, and it just totally kind of threw the album off. I'm like, why would they put this at the end? <laughs> yeah, and it's that kind of like smooth adult contemporary ballad that a lot of disco stars were trying to do. So it's almost like the label's like, let's just cover our bases in case this new like weird synthesizer stuff doesn't quite hit the way we th- they want it to. And yeah, it's the only bad song on the album. Yeah, yeah, no, they're all they're all quality tracks for sure. I want to talk a little bit more about the production team that's on it and also just kind of the increasing interconnectedness of records. The more you get into music collecting and the more we're getting into this podcast, we're starting to see some more overlaps and similar styles, approaches, and often musicians and producers on it. We talked about, I got that Midnight Star record a few years ago because of listening to a Kashif Pandora station. And this Evelyn King record I've owned for a number of years, actually, I got it out of the legendary Harvey's basement here in Kalamazoo for 50 cents. <laughs> you yeah. Can 
You can hear the authentic dollar bin crackle on the vinyl rips of this record. It's been a record I've listened to for a long time and really like DJed with it often. And then in doing the research after selecting it for this week, just found out, oh, Kashif is on the record. Like I only found that like a week ago. Yeah. What a fine. Yeah. That was after you had told us you were uh, picking this one, right? You didn't even know. Yeah, totally. So we now have two records that have been selected with a Kashif association and eventually we'll actually do a real Kashif record once I track down his second album. Looking forward to it. Kashif and his production partners Maury Brown and Paul Lawrence were just starting to hit their stride shortly after this. They became some of the most in-demand producers in the funk world and Kashif is often recognized as being a pioneer in his use of synthesizers and having a more stripped down and kind of hard hitting approach to it that was definitely picked up with a lot of hip hop that was coming after this and a lot of the funk bands that were starting to get big in the early to mid eighties. And he, uh, him and Paul Lawrence had just come off of working with the band BT express and also Tavares. They'd done some instrumentation and production and writing for them. And we're just starting to get recognized. And the the partnership with Evelyn King kind of put all of them on the map or back on the map in some cases. And then right after this record, Evelyn switched producers again and worked with a guy named Leon Silvers. Do you guys remember talking about him a little while ago? I remember the name. I don't remember. He produced and wrote, I think, three of the tracks on the Brothers Johnson record in 1984, the one that we covered. Yeah, that was 1984 that we covered that. That's so long ago, I can't remember those details. The record came out in 1984, Peter. Who are you guys? I I guess it seems like we've been doing this for so long now, this podcast. Mm -hmm. It was a joke, Sean. Do you get jokes? (laughs) Not always. Well, that's just about all all my notes on this record you guys have any other other elements you want to talk about any thoughts any notes jeremy no well how do i mean you feel you f- about this jeremy let us know how you feel about this this record You've been rather mum oh i think it it bops nicely was pointed out it felt similar to midnight star to me of by the end of it i was just like okay this is it's just hard to listen to a whole dance record for me I'm not a dance person. <laughs> That's fine. I'm fine with being the the token dance record aficionado on this podcast. Yeah, and yeah, the the opinions I expressed are not coming from someone with with knowledge of having to keep the party going while DJing, but and I realize that that's what these records are meant to do, you know, supposed to bop till you drop. Yep, and it sure does that. True. Yeah, and I I like uh, it, it is different in the way that they're employing the synthesizers than the Midnight Star record that we did. That one, of course, that one, I'd say that one did diversify a bit more than this one. I think there was a little bit more distinction between the tracks and the, this one plays it pretty straight. Yeah, definitely. I think they're they're very consistent on this one. There were a couple moments where something unexpected happened and I kind of wish that they had just, and that's me as, as not, not dancing to it, wishing, (laughs) wanting them to like stretch out into some weirdness, which is not what these albums are about. Right. Totally. That would be interesting if there was more, you know, 
early 80s funk records that got weird at times. KG Hino guest appearance. <laughs> Just go super left of center for some of it. Oh, the other thing I wanted to talk about is another style I've been digging into off show lately is finding smooth jazz records from this time period that are actually good. Because, you know, like the majority of them are total crap, but I'm finding that some of these artists who like 99% of their career sucks will have one good record or part of a record that has some really interesting elements on it. And while doing research for this album, I saw that one of the next big projects that Kashif worked on after this was introducing a hot new artist to the world by the name of Kenny G. Oh, no way. Peter's favorite. He's basically the one that he discovered Kenny (laughs) G produced his first record and launched his career and I was like, well, I guess I'm about to listen to this first Kenny G record. And I got to say, everything aside from the saxophone on that record is amazing. <laughs> did Jeremy, did you say Peter's favorite to Kenny G? Yeah. Well, it's my or- order of artists. Uh, it goes Tupac, Kenny G, Barbara Streisand. <laughs> got to keep them separated. Yeah, like the offspring. Boo. <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> I can't believe Kashif is responsible for Kenny G. Yeah, you guys should check out that record at some point and uh, give give me your opinions on it. I might have to actually feature the first Kenny G record on this podcast at some point because there's some really, really good elements to it. The synthesizers are great, especially listening to this record and some of the other Kashif stuff and hearing his like signature production style and then listening to that in a smooth jazz context. There's some bangers on it. Well, I think we should stop talking about Kashif so you still have some stuff left for when we cover his album. But uh, <laughs> as far as, yeah, Evelyn Champagne King, uh, are there any other similar artists to her from this time period who aren't Kashif that you can recommend? Yeah, the first two that come to mind is... Loose Ends. Uh, one that we... Loose Ends is definitely one that is really good from this time period that I want to cover at some point. Stephanie Mills. Ends. Yeah, Stephanie Mills is another one that I I believe Evelyn King and Stephanie Mills work together at different points, too. And then Cheryl Lynn is one that we Mm -hmm. almost did that we talked about doing for this episode. Uh, Those are excellent female funk contemporaries that are definitely worth checking out. I do like Cheryl Lynn, and I I hope that we end up uh, doing one of her albums at some point. Oh, I'm sure that we will. All right, boys, you want to go out on a track here? Yes. Yeah. All right. We're going to not play the last track on the album. Instead, we're going to play the second to last track called Get Up Off Your Love, which might be my favorite on the album. It's it's pretty good. That was something funny I noticed is that I think there are three distinct songs on this album that have the word love and a direction included in them, like back or up <laughs> or off. <laughs> it, it's consistent. It's a consistent album. Yeah, consistent imagery, production, all of it, straight. Except for the last track, almost perfect. Almost, they they just had to include that one. All right, thanks for listening to another episode. I'm Sean Hartman. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. And I am Peter Cook. Here's the song, Get Up Off Your Love, from Evelyn Champagne King's album, Get Loose.
That concludes another episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. If you are on the Instagram app and looking for more information on this podcast, you can follow us. You can search us at I'd Buy That Podcast. We usually post a teaser for the upcoming episode the day before. Also post the episode the day of so that you'll know post an image of the album cover so you'll know that the episode has dropped keep you reminded when you're flipping around on your when you're flipping around on your phone so follow us on instagram i'd buy that podcast this has been i'd buy that for a dollar thanks for listening you got to give it